In this episode, we talk about the history of college football in 1935. The Football History Rewind, part number 76, goes through the big game, star players, and top teams of the season, as well as some of the interesting ranking systems, trying to find out who that national championship was. We have this and more coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Aaron Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And welcome to another edition of the Football History Rewind, where we go through football's history year by year, season by season. And this time in this uh, part number 76 of this series, can you believe we're up that high already? We're going to be covering the 1935 college football season. But before we do that, let's make sure you're aware that you can get our daily newsletter every day about 6.30 a.m. delivered directly to your email inbox. We're going to have all the latest and greatest things that are posting up on Pigskin Dispatch, our podcasts, our articles, as well as Jersey Dispatch. We're going to honor some Hall of Famers in the big four sports of North America. And we're going to try to tell you about some big games and big events that happened in the game of football as well as baseball, hockey, and basketball. So make sure you check that out. Really easy to sign up for. You can cancel at any time. To sign up, go to the show notes of this podcast or the top of pigskindispatch.com or jerseydispatch.com to have that emailed newsletter. Now, the 1935 college football season is just one to really look at and take away some of the great moments in sports history that came from it. You know, there was controversy on who the top team was that year, as there were many years, and many official ways to measure a champion and a new award that would recognize the nation's top player. So let's sit back and enjoy this glimpse into history of this very memorable 1935 season. You know, the 1934 consensus champions were the Minnesota Golden Gophers, and their future Hall of Fame coach, Bernie Bierman, once again had a formidable roster going into 1935 that made them the odds-on favorite to repeat as champions. Now the 1935 Gophers featured left end Dwight T. Reed, starting star right end Ray King, guard Bud Wilkinson, tackle Ed Weiseth, halfback Sheldon Bees, and tackle Dick Smith, as well as quarterback Babe Lavore and a high-caliber back in George Roscoe. Now, Minnesota opened its season with a 26-6 victory over the North Dakota Agricultural School before a crowd of more than 34,000 at Memorial Stadium in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, Minnesota scored four touchdowns in a game, two by Reed, one being a 40-yard pass from halfback Roscoe, and George Roscoe also tallied on a four-yard run, and King on a 17-yard pass from Roscoe. Remember, back in those that era of single platoon football and single wing football, the halfbacks most of the time threw the passes, not the quarterback as we know today. 
Now, the second test of Minnesota was a travel to Nebraska and play a very highly touted Cornhuskers team. The Gophers escaped in a thrilling 12-7 victory there, overcoming their rivals, and Minnesota's march towards greatness continued, with wins over Tulane, 20-0. Northwestern by the score, 21-13, a close one. Purdue, they beat 29-7, and at Iowa, they had another really tough match up there, and won 13-6. They, they blew up Michigan 40 to nothing, and finally, there was a 33 to seven one-sided victory over Wisconsin on Minnesota's home field. Now the Golden Gophers compiled an undefeated record of 8-0 and outscored their opponents by a combined total of 194 to 36. Pretty formidable indeed, and maybe good enough to make them repeat as champions. But. There were some great uh, awards that came to the team rolling in. You know, quarterback Babe Lavoie earned the team's most valuable player award. Now, tackle Wide Seth was named the All-American by the Walter Camp Foundation in UPI, Liberty, Hearst, and New York World Telegram. Now, Beast, the quarterback, Lavoie, Smith, and Wide Seth, and Wilkinson were all named to All-Big Ten. And guard Wilkinson was named as an All-American by Grantland Rice and the Associated Press. Tackle Dick Smith was an All-American by the APUPI and the New York World Telegram and Look Magazine. And halfback Sheldon Beast was named as an All-American by the American Sports Service and the New York Daily Mirror. But there was another team on the horizon that had some aspirations themselves. Down near Dallas, Texas, the Southern Methodist University team was also fielding a championship caliber club. In his first season at the school, head coach Matty Bell led a strong roster of stars. Now leading the way to a promising season where halfback Bob Wilson, tackle Truman Spain, Harry Shuford, Marco Stewart, and guard J.C. Wetzel. The SMU Mustangs went on to an overall mark of 12-1 on the season with an unblemished 6-0 record in conference play as they won the SWC title. The Mustangs had a convincing wins over North Texas State 39-0. Austin 60-0 was the score. They beat Tulsa 20-0. Washington University was a 35-6 victory. And they defeated rival Rice 10-0. Hardin-Simmons 18-6. Texas 20-0. Then they traveled out to UCLA and beat them 21-0. They defeated Arkansas 17-6. Baylor 10-0, TCU 20-14, and Texas A&M was knocked off by the score of 24-0 by the Mustangs. The, the SMU's only setback of the whole season was a 7-0 loss in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day at the hands of Stanford. Now, that brings us to this point. Now, who is the national champion? of 1935 with these two great teams and we have a few more that are in the mix and we're going to get to those right after you hear this message friends i have to share something with you my house is going crazy this past weekend we got our latest delivery from funky chunky gourmet popcorn and oh my gosh was this a special treat Uh, we had some great items that they offer it's not just gourmet popcorn although it is excellent popcorn they have they have a nutty choco pop we had some peanut butter chocolate popcorn salt sea caramel and a chip zell pop but they also have some great chocolate covered pretzels we got in a variety pack and i'll tell you what it is 
is unbelievable and tasty and you can't put the bag down once you start on it so you strap on that feed bag and and feed on that funky chunky so you can find them at funkychunky.com i highly recommend them and tell them that darren hayes of pigskin dispatch sent you question arose in 1935 how do you pick a champion from these two great teams in minnesota and smu along with a bunch of other ones that are you know maybe have a chance of being a national champion too well they tried to do it scientifically this is before they had the polls that really chose things out there and the ncaa in 1935 recognized seven different mathematical systems that could choose a national champion. Now, since 1934, the league had relied on the Dickinson system to help calibrate the field of contenders into a mathematical ranked order. Now, there were many flaws with it. And by 1935, the NCA recognized six additional systems of mathematic equation besides Dickinson to choose a national champion. Now the Dickinson, of course, was run by the University of Illinois professor Frank Dickinson and used that mathematical formula to calibrate where teams were ranked and who was the better team. There was also the Holgate system created by Carol Everett Deke Holgate Sr. and was more formally known as the Deke Holgate Collegiate Football Rating System. This mathematical system would determine annual collegiate gridiron champions by rating teams according to the strength of their opponents and how they fared against them. There was the Bone system, also known as the Azzy Radom system, as in Azzy Radom. <laughs> with those words, developed by William F. Bone. The rankings were based on a mathematical formula as well, and this system used from 1930 to 1960 for contemporary selections, but it also did retroactive studies back to the 1924 season to calculate champions for those in the past as well. And we've talked about some of those on our Football History Rewind series when we talk about the Bone system and Holgate going retroactively. There was also the Litkenhaus difference by scoring rating system. This mathematical system had used uh, to rank football and basketball teams based on the score of differential of common opponents in points scoring and opponents during the regular season. The literating system was developed by Vanderbilt University professor Edward E. Litkenhaus and his brother Francis H. Litkenhaus. There was the polling math rating system where you use some rankings from different methods. This mathematical rating system for college football teams developed by Richard Poling of Mansfield, Ohio. Now, Poling was a former football player at Ohio Wesleyan, and Poling's football ratings were published annually in the Football Review Supplement and various newspapers, predated the national champions from 1924 through 1934 and was used uh, quite commonly there in the 1935 season and beyond for some contemporary uh, ratings as well. Then you had the Dunkel system. Now this system started in 1929 is still used to this very day in the 21st century. And it was a power index system devised by Dick Dunkel Sr. and later revised by his son, Dick Dunkel Jr. Uh, That system was 1972-1975 that he revised of his father's. And in 1996, it was revised again by John Duck 
1996 through the present day. According to the official website at www.dunkleindex.com, because teams back then rarely traveled across the country to play each other, there was a constant debate between the East and the West Coast over which was number one. Now Dick came up with the ingenious solution to take which data is available, create some formulas, and calculate mathematically the best teams in the land. And it was an idea that really took off because it grabbed so many different variables, more so than some of those other uh, systems that were in use. Dick took some scratches on index cards and turned it into a system that was syndicated nationwide. And because of its novel approach and unparalleled accuracy, the Dunkel Index quickly became the de facto authority on college football. Hundreds of newspapers around the country carried the Dunkel Index, and Dick continued to produce these power rankings by his own hand until the early 1970s when Dick Jr. took over, and from him took over was John Duck, and is still done today. And they changed it a few times just because we had different ways of getting statistics and new statistics and rankings and using some of the poll systems that we used uh, up until recently and still use some of those uh, now. And that's sort of what the BCS was based on and some of the other rankings too. So just very interesting. Now, uh, the last system that was used was the Williamson system that was used in 1935. It started in 1932 and going all the way through the 1963 uh, year. This system was a power rating system chosen by Paul Williamson of New Orleans, Louisiana, a geologist and member of the Sugar Bowl Committee, where he too would use some uh, variables that would be uh, constant to different teams to develop a system to figure out who the best team was. So now we come down to, we have all these systems, and how do we know who the best team is? What were their results? Well, you're gonna see with the different methods that were used, you had a variety of teams that were considered national champions. This became a little bit of a problem. The UPI conducted a poll of sports writers from 112 newspapers, and they voted Minnesota's number one, SMU number two at the end of the regular season. The UPI poll was the only sports writers poll at the time. Uh, we're going to learn about it in a couple weeks. 1936 season, the Associated Press, the AP poll, which is uh, you know one of the big ones that are used currently, that comes up in 1936. So no AP poll 1935. Now SMU won the coveted Newt Rockney Trophy and was the best team in the land and the moniker of national champion according to the Dickinson rating system. But Dickinson only looked at the regular season and not at the postseason Rose Bowl loss that SMU had at the hands of Stanford, as we talked about earlier. The Holgate system, they selected SMU. The Boned, Lickenhouse, and Polling systems all chose Minnesota. The Dunkel system selected Princeton as its top team, very curious. And the Williamson system placed Texas Christian University as the top team. Very interesting indeed, because we're going to see some of these games, how they played out. So let's first look at Texas Christian. They ended up with a 12-1 record. But that one loss of TCU, as mentioned earlier, was at the hands of SMU. So how could the Williamson system put TCU over top of SMU. SMU beat them in head-to-head, proving that they were the better team. But they both had one loss at the end of the season. Maybe that's why. 
Ohio State was another contender at 7-1, and they had a late-season, late-game loss to Notre Dame in a legendary fourth-quarter comeback by the Irish that sealed the Ohio State Buckeyes' fate. It was a tie for the Big Ten supremacy with the Gophers, and that Gophers team having an undefeated record and getting the ranking ahead of them, so Ohio State's out. The Cal Golden Bears ended with a season-ending loss to Stanford, and they sported a 9-1 record with that loss, missing out on a trip to the Rose Bowl, and so Stanford ruined their season. A 7-1-1 Notre Dame, who lost to lowly Northwestern and tied Army that year, that uh, lost to Northwestern sort of knocked them out. UCLA, we talked about them earlier. They finished 8-2, but that home loss to SMU at home, you know, by, you know Southern Methodist uh, beating them up pretty good. And another defeat at the hands of Cal overshadowed their win over Stanford, who ended up winning the Rose Bowl. Holy Cross was 9-0-1, but their competition level was considered weak, and even the, uh, the statistical mathematical formulas, none of them considered them the top team in the land. And the University of Ohio finished undefeated at 8-0 with a signature win over the University of Illinois. But they barely got by some weaker teams on the schedule, so that score differential uh, of uh, you know some of those uh, polling systems did not rank them very high and put them in the number one spot. So what a quandary we have here. We sort of are split between what we talked about earlier, SMU and Minnesota, and you know then you throw in some of the uh, the oddballs, you know TCU and Princeton. Uh, just kind of an odd, different uh, situation. So it would have really benefited them way back when, then to have a national championship series as we have today, or even the, uh, you know, what you had from over you know a decade ago where you just took the two top teams and you tried to put them against each other in the BCS poll and play each other. You probably would have had SMU at Minnesota, and what a game that would have been to watch. Uh, very, very interesting to see that. So it's interesting, and there, you know it varies on who people say the national championships are, uh, but I think the NCAA has Minnesota winning a second consecutive championship, so we've got to sort of lean with what goes on there. Now, there were some other bowl games that occurred other than the Rose Bowl. The Sugar Bowl had its second season, and they invited TCO 11-1 against the Southeastern Conference champion LSU, who was 9-1 in front of a great crowd of over 38,000 fans. And TCU's Sammy Baugh was forced out of the end zone on a pass attempt to score safety, providing LSU with a 2-0 late lead after a mostly stalemate uh, game earlier. Broke that scoreless tie. But two minutes later... Baugh drove the Frogs to the 17-yard line, setting up Talden Malton's field goal, and a final score was TCU 3, LSU 2, in that second-ever Sugar Bowl game. What a game that must have been. Now, in Miami, the second annual Orange Bowl game was played. It matched Old Miss 9-2 against the unheralded Catholic University 8-1. A crowd of 10,000 watched Catholic take an early lead and pull off a 20-19 upset over Ole Miss in that game. Now, the Sun Bowl matched two colleges for the very first time. Uh, the first time the Sun Bowl was played as New Mexico A&M and Hardin-Simmons battled to a 14-all tie to start off that great series. And we had the All-American team that was still selected and you know used to be done by Walter Camp. He had died 10 years prior to that. 
uh, Grantland Rice and some others picked up the, the reins of that and they sort of voted on it with some other writers. Uh, Jay Beringer uh, from the University of Chicago who had 119 attempts, 477 yards, 4.0 average, uh, ended up winning the first ever uh, Downtown Athletic Club trophy, which would later become the Heisman Trophy, first winner of that. He was also the first draft pick in NFL history, but never played down in the NFL. We've talked about that a couple times. Uh, he was on the All-American team. Bobby Grayson, uh, back from Stanford, made the team. Riley Smith, a back from Alabama. And Bobby Wilson from SMU that we mentioned earlier was also on that team. At ends, they chose Wayne Milner of Notre Dame, Stanford's James Moscrip, and Gaynell Tinsley of LSU at the ends. At uh, the L's, we had Gomer Jones, Ohio State, Daryl Jester of TCU, Larry Lutz of California, Sidney Wagner, another lineman from Michigan State, John Weller, a lineman from Princeton, J.C. Wetzel, we talked about earlier, from SMU, and Ed Widesmith of uh, Minnesota was also on, on the line for All-Americans. Now, that is some great players, some great names in history. And, you know, Sammy Bob was coming up through the ranks. We'll talk about him more, I'm sure, in the 1936 season. Uh, but he you know, could have very well been on that list and was probably just missed out. And uh, some others that are going to be coming up in the ranks. We had some great seasons in the 1930s and uh, beyond. But uh, you know, we really appreciate you joining us here for this great historical look at the 1935 college football season. We'd love to look at college football history. We'd love to talk about it. Love to write about it. You can join us each and every day at pigskindispatch.com as we have some great uh, articles that come up and we honor those in the Hall of Fame as well as some great games and great moments in football history and we try to have some great guests on too uh, we have podcasts coming out new ones three to four times a week we have our archive podcasts of over 1500 podcasts for you to choose from we try to pick one for you each day that's pertinent to that day of the year uh, we do that in the newsletter it also pops up on our front page of pigskindispatch.com so make sure you join us there find us on social media on twitter we are at pigskin Dis- dispatch and we have facebook at pigskin dispatch page so we really thank you for joining us today and we hope you join us each and every day for more great football history until tomorrow everybody have a great great iron day that's all the football history we have today folks join us back tomorrow for more of your football history we invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.